You're listening to Cancer Covered. Cancer patients are often cast as warriors in a battle against cancer. At times, thinking this way can be very helpful. That relentlessness has certainly driven great progress in cancer treatment, as we learned in our first episode. But there is another side to it. The hard truth is, there comes a tipping point for cancer patients, and for us all, when death becomes inevitable. But does that mean they lost the fight? We don't think so. We also think that when that tipping point comes, an all-or-nothing battle attitude can actually be destructive. So is acknowledging the inevitability of death ever a positive thing? Dr. Jennifer Tamell, Harvard researcher and author of a landmark report in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2010, says it can be. She assigned a group of incurable lung cancer patients to begin palliative care services, which included planning for death at the same time they started chemotherapy and radiation treatments. The palliative services not only helped the patients live better, they lived significantly longer. But where does hope fit into all of this? And how do we sustain it in the face of death? For a different perspective on this important topic, I sat down with special guest, Matt Malcor. You're listening to Cancer Covered with Green Bay Oncology, where we explore pressing cancer issues and look for ways healthcare professionals, patients, and their families can cope better together. I'm Dr. Mitch Winkler. I'm here with Matt Malcor. Matt, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, sure. Tell us a bit about yourself. I'm a fifth generation funeral director. Malcor Funeral has been in business for over 100 years. I'm happily married. I've got two children. Uh, a couple of things I'm passionate about other than funeral service. I, I love antiques. I'm a huge animal lover. And something that's kind of unique to me is being in a family business. People just, they're surprised I'm a funeral director because they think I'm just kind of an average guy. And they're surprised when I say I'm a funeral director. Yeah, you seem cheerful. You don't yeah. seem dark or right. or anything right. like that. Exactly. How did you get into the business? Yeah, so like any family business, obviously I grew up, I saw my father in the business. And you know, I was struck as a child because it's interesting going to local restaurants and everybody knows your dad. So, you know, you don't really have a full grasp of what your parent does. As much as he brought us to the funeral home often and we were able to see kind of what he did, you know, it, I thought of him as almost like a celebrity as a child. He just knew everybody and everybody was happy to see him. And, and I thought that was pretty cool. But as far as how I got into the business, I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I was in college. I thought at first, maybe I wanted to be a teacher. And then I got just kind of lost. So naturally, my father said, well, why don't you just give this a try? I think you've got the mentality for it. I think you'd be good at it. Just give it a shot. And if you don't like it, then you know th there's other things you can do. So I decided to do just that. I got into the family business. And I loved it. Furthermore, I worked with my family. And to me, I, I recommit to it every day. I love what I do. And I wouldn't do anything else. So you came to this business through your family, but you're in charge of it now, if I understand correctly. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Cool. So I worked with my two brothers. I worked with my father. My father uh, semi-retired in 2009. He comes in on occasion. The beautiful thing about being in a family business is I know I have that ace up my sleeve. If I got any questions or anything I've not run into... Or, or something I need a little expertise on. 40 years of expertise, having that uh, one phone call always is amazing. And having that be your dad, 
it's a special feeling and it's a deep bond that we have and something we can talk about. And one thing that's always been important in our life, being in a family business is when you talk about business, it's, it's business time. But when we see each other, it's, it's family time. There's a separation. So we can have some real deep conversations on the professional end, but it can be a little different on the personal end, but have a different kind of deep relationship together. Now, what misconceptions do you think people have about your work or about the funeral business in general? People are surprised to find out that I'm a funeral director because I'm not extremely serious when they meet me. I think people expect me to be stoic and serious even outside of the funeral home. And I think this goes for any funeral director. You know, we have a unique ability to be extremely serious when we need to be. But in the same regard, I think the way that we deal with the weightiness of our profession is we're able to be fun and be great dads and be into other things and, and able to, to have that at work and come home and be different things. How does the work affect your life, how you approach it, how you live it, if, if at all? People talk about the heaviness of a job like funeral service, and there's other jobs that have that heaviness or weightiness to them. Like ours. Like yours, exactly. I think the way it affects us is in a positive way, believe it or not. For people that have a weighty profession, we're more apt to have a heavy conversation at home because we have heavy conversations at work. We're not shy about those things. I think interpersonal relationships are very important to people that have a heavy job. If we don't have support, if we don't have good relationships, then it makes our professional life that much more difficult. So oftentimes we, we see people in our line of work that have estrangement, uh, maybe aren't close with their relatives. And I think we see firsthand that we want to cherish our relationships. It, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that when you say yeah. heavy conversations. One of the points that came out in one of our earlier episodes when we were dealing with difficult conversations was that the hard conversations, the ones that everybody stress about, the ones yes. that everybody works really, really hard to avoid are actually the only important ones to have, or at least yes. some of the most important ones to have. And not right. having them gets in the way of things being as good as they could be, whether it's relationships, whether it's work, whether it's medical care. And it sounds like that's been your experience as well. That's correct. I feel 100% mm -hmm. the same way. I want to dive into those conversations, especially if they affect my personal life. I'm not a person to bottle anything up. I want to have those tough conversations so that that's taken care of at that moment and we can move in a positive direction from that point forward and live our day or that week or whatever that is in, in a better light. So maybe leaning into the things that most of us would rather avoid, whether it's difficult conversations or death and dying, has potential to improve our lives. I would agree. So did growing up involved or, you know, adjacent to the funeral business, which is to a great extent about death and dying, affect your beliefs or identity? I think it did. I had a conversation with my father and the experience that I've had with my children is the same experience he had with us as children. We bring our children into the funeral home and that can be at two years old, that can be at four years old, that can be at 10 years old. Children have a unique way of handling death. I think the experience that I've had and he's had is that we're more concerned about learning about the person. You know, is that person dead? Yes, they are. They are dead. Well, what kind of person was he? Well, you know, Bob was a farmer. He's a really nice guy. I met with his wife, his family, beautiful family. You know, I'll share a few nice stories with them. And at that moment, the child's mind is at rest. Oh, well, Bob sounded like a great guy. Mm -hmm. 
you know, that's never anything that's been shielded for any of our families growing up in this business. And I think having that perspective at a young age provides a unique outlook on life. I mean, the instinct often is to shield children from the realities of death and dying. Yes. And the more medicalized death has gotten, you know, like, which began in the middle part of the last century. Yes. And death used to be a family event that occurred in the family home when we lived more rurally. Uh, but as death has moved more into the hospital, it's become less a, a routine part of everyone's lives and a natural part of their lives. So as children have gotten more isolated from it, I've often wondered if there's been a cultural effect on us collectively as, as Americans from that. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. And I even see people from other cultures, children from other cultures that we, you know, we live in a, a diverse community here in Green mm -hmm. Bay. And I see some of these communities and children are very much a part of some of the diverse communities they come to the funerals and they hold their loved one's hand. Uh, they're there up at the casket. And then there are other communities in Green Bay where it, they're much more, I guess, distant. Uh, the children are. Maybe they're playing in the basement or maybe they're reading a book, playing, doing something else. But I think culturally speaking, for, for some of the communities in Green Bay, maybe due to where they came from, uh, they're much more comfortable with death. There's clear indication from the medical literature, particularly in palliative care and hospice medicine, that children who are involved in and bear witness to the dying of a loved one and even the death itself and, and caring for them, if that's something they, they want to participate in, have less complicated grief, less depression, seem to be better adjusted as adults. So your experience and what you've observed seems to be validated by what's reported in the medical literature as well. Yeah, I would agree with that. No one should carry the burden of cancer alone. A cancer diagnosis can make you and your loved ones feel isolated and alone, just when you need support the most. I'm Addison Young. And I'm Tom Beckers. As social workers at Green Bay Oncology, we know that meaningful connection brings strength and healing. Sharing the experience in a safe space with others on a similar path is often powerful and therapeutic. That's why we offer a free monthly virtual cancer support group facilitated for you and your loved ones. Wherever you are on your cancer journey, you're always welcome. To join us, visit gboncology.com events. It seems we instinctively try to shield our children and ourselves from the very existence of death by avoiding the topic altogether. But this culture of silence eventually crumbles when death inevitably comes into people's lives. I asked Matt if there are consequences of this kind of denial. Do you think Americans are in denial about their mortality? I would say that answer is yes. I think for most people, and just speaking from my perspective, I think so many people we sit down with, maybe their loved one has been in hospice for a month, maybe even a year. And we broach that difficult conversation of, of did you ever have this conversation with your loved one? What do, what do they want? And a lot of times they don't know. They never had that conversation. It's just forbidden. We don't do that. Yeah. They never wanted to talk about it. We never wanted to talk about what was going to happen after he passed away or she passed away. I think a lot of people are hesitant to jump into that conversation. Is that detrimental, do you think? I do think so. You know, with death, it's about the survivors. It's about the deceased. But at that point, it's about how are the survivors 
going to handle, going to deal with this passing. We hear often sometimes people say, well, my loved one didn't have a service. And many times I'll look at them and say, do you want to have a service? Mm -hmm. And there's no mandatory correct answer on Mm -hmm. that. But if they do as the survivor, and if that's important for them, they're the ones still on this earth grieving their loved one. And if that's something you need, then I think your loved one would be okay with, with having something, whether that be grand or small, it doesn't matter. Just to have something, if it's meaningful to you, then you got to do it. Do you think that if Americans generally are in denial about our mortality or avoidant of the topic, is that any idea where that comes from? Is that something unique to the American can-do mindset or that, you know, with enough spit and bailing wire and elbow grease that, that, you know, that anything can be overcome or that we're somehow exceptional? Do you have any ideas about that? You're correct when you said that people passing away in hospitals and not at home and not having grandma or grandpa sick, not being a witness to that, people are able to, in a hospital, they're, they're able to step away, take a break. They want to be there for their loved one. But in the same regards, they say, you know, they're in good hands, which they are. They are in good hands. But I think having your loved one at home, that's the beauty of hospice and things of that nature. It's more in your face, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's a better acceptance and hospice is good at initiating some of those tough questions. And that's sometimes what what families need. They need someone to initiate, hey, you need to have this conversation Mm -hmm. or you need to start making plans about this, that, or the other thing. And I think that coming from a neutral party is is important because finally somebody might say, well, that that makes sense. We we Mm -hmm. really should talk about that. But it takes just that little nudge. I've wondered how much of that American tendency to avoid death or, and deny its inevitability is the result of medical care in the United States. And, you know, with the advent of antibiotics, with the advent of, you know, effective treatment for coronary disease and a lot of things that people died of all the time. And then, you know, we get treatments and cures and you see diseases that used to be inevitable death sentences. And now, you know, people can either be cured of them or live with them much longer than before. And I think that is probably a factor. The other thing that I've wondered about, a staple of medical care and medical ethics from the previous century was the paternalistic idea that if you have a patient with a bad prognosis that is destined to die of their disease, you don't tell them. And the idea is that to do that takes away their hope in a way that is damaging. Now, thought on that has changed, and it's actually regarded as as unethical to do that. I mean, it's a fairly recent change, maybe in the last two generations, really, of medical care, which is not not very long if you think about it. What kind of harms come from denying the inevitability of death? Uh, I I know there are some medical ones, which I can comment on. I I mean, have you seen things in your work or in, in your own life that would suggest that it's harmful to approach it that way? I think so. I think when you're not prepared and you're less organized for your own passing, mm-hmm. I mean, just take me for example, I had just, just a routine surgery a few years ago, but in the same regard, I made a folder for my wife. If I die folder, uh, mm-hmm. you know, with, uh, this is, you know, my passwords to this, that, and the other thing. Mm-hmm. And this is maybe something you don't know. Maybe you should know a couple of different things, but I think it's damaging I think so many people don't want to talk about death that they are totally and utterly lost when it happens. And it brings about, uh, well, what do we do now? I I don't know what to do. 
you mentioned historically, historically, there, there was so much more passings, a lot more death and, and younger people mm -hmm. passed away. Mm -hmm. And that was very much part of our, our regular life was accepting this. And when somebody passes away now, it's usually for most people, in many cases, it's the first death they've had in their family. And they think, oh my gosh, I've done a whole lot of things in my life, but I've never done this. Can people really go on through this? Right. It, it's what's uh, next? More intimidating. Yeah. yeah. What's next? In the same regard, they're in a business decision of picking someone like me, a funeral home. Mm -hmm. You know, which funeral home do I pick? You know, I don't even know a funeral home. Mm -hmm. What do they even do? What, what you know, what am I going to do? When can I have it? There's so many questions. And if people had that frame of mind of what happens after I pass away, mm -hmm. It, it just gives peace of mind, not only to them, but to their survivors. And leaving it for all those million decisions to be made at a time when you're emotionally distraught, when you're grieving, yes. it, it makes it much harder to do. I mean, I know having gone through that with, with my father not too long ago, who died unexpectedly, and yeah. although things were pretty well organized, there's still a lot to sort through. Right. And, and at a time when you're least capable and have the least energy to really think clearly. Correct. And do it. Correct. We avoid discussing or even thinking about death because of fear, but also because of hope. We hope that it won't be coming anytime soon. So hope becomes a double-edged sword that reassures, but also makes us less prepared. But because hope is such a big thing and such a powerful, positive force, I also wanted to explore the flip side of that with Matt. When death comes and things seem most hopeless, can hope still exist? In the medical realm, what we see when people have life-limiting illnesses or illnesses that they cannot survive but cannot confront or, or make peace with that, what happens sometimes is that people continue to make choices for their medical care and for increasingly aggressive measures that have much and much less to offer them. And it seems to contribute to them suffering more at end of life, not just for them, the patients, but for their families. We know that patients who die in an intensive care unit or who have a, a very medical intervention type death, that grief is much more complicated and sure. depression and mental illness are often more prevalent in deaths of that kind rather than the kind where people at, at some point are able to make some peace with, we did all we could. Right. And I think for a lot of people, especially those that are not going through that prognosis or they're on their last days or last weeks, mm -hmm. I think the people in their lives, they, they do have that hope that, well, he's not doing well, but he has this coming up. That didn't work, but we're going to try this. Mm -hmm. And I think that boils down to maybe people having the frame of mind of, yes, we hope this works, but we need to plan for beyond that if it doesn't work. What is the place for hope when we're no longer hoping for medical delivery from death or we're no longer expecting to be delivered from death? Is hope still possible when that happens? I think hope plays a lot of roles in our lives. I think when we're in our regular lives, doing going to our jobs, I'm not a car guy, but I think of hope as kind of one of those elements to make our body run, our car run, you know? Mm -hmm. Hope is one of those things that, that makes you get up in the morning, hope for a good day, hope for, you know, things go smoothly, hope for a lot of good things to happen. And 
we all know, and we've all been unfortunate enough to know people that don't have that in their lives and that can serve a huge detriment to them. As far as end of life goes, I think there's, there's hope beyond our passing. There, there's hope for many things. I played baseball with my grandson for, for 30 years. Boy, I, I hope he, he does great. And, and hope for, for the many positive seeds that you've sowed in your entire life. I think there's so many hopeful things that, that you can smile about. Mm-hmm. That's why we're here, hopefully, to, I think most of us hope to live a dutiful life and sow the seeds of good things and hope for a better future and hope that those seeds that we've sowed provide just a wonderful life for those that we leave behind. So it's a process of really hope shifts from one thing to another and that hope always finds a way. Absolutely. One of my mentors in hospice and palliative medicine said that uh, maintaining hope when facing a life-limiting illness or an end-of-life time is about shifting hope from one thing to another. And he always said that hope is big enough and strong enough to change like that. And hope is too big to be contained by the narrow limits of medicine. As good as they are, hope is too big for medicine to limit it. And yes. hope is too big for death to even limit it. And I Absolutely. thought that was a beautiful sentiment. Are there any stories or examples you have about people finding hope at a time with, that they expected would be hopeless? I really do. I, I think especially couples, you know, when they're elderly, especially, they struggle to find hope beyond the loss of their loved one. After a passing has happened, many times people are not only enriched by the life that their loved one lived, but they're also find this new hope to continue their lives. Just because someone passed away, like you said, hope is too powerful and hope finds a way in your life. Hope is so meaningful for me because I see it every day. I look for it. People that are going through a loss or maybe somebody that's going to pass away, they find hope to continue their lives in a productive way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important. And I think that goes to talking about complicated grief and and not having that complicated grief to grieve your loved one and, and to live a life that's full of hope once again. There are two stories that I'm always carrying with me about people who found a surprising amount of hope when they were facing their own death. One was a patient who had been a teacher before retiring and was dying of cancer. When I was talking to her, I said something about how unusually open she was about her dying process and everything she was thinking and feeling, positive or negative, with her kids and her grandchildren. And I commented on how unusual I thought that was, but but how inspiring. And she said, I never stopped being a teacher. And now I get to teach my kids and grandkids one last thing. I get to teach them how to die. And I thought that was really moving. Yeah, that's beautiful. The the other one that for me very personally was when my father died two years ago. My father was a, he was an energetic guy and a a busy guy, a bit of a fretter, a bit restless in, in lots of things. And, you know, it was always nudging things, always trying to, get things better. One of the last things he said to my mother before he lost consciousness for the last time was he said, I really am okay with this, the the way it happened. And that was that that guy, my dad, who was a fretter and, you know, nothing was ever quite good enough, you know, his whole life could, could find something peaceful and restful when, when he, when he died very suddenly and unexpectedly. And, And both of those things I carry with me a little bit every day. Absolutely. 
definitely hear those stories too of of people that are passing away comforting those that mm-hmm. they're going to leave behind and just saying it's it's okay it's okay i love you and, and it's going to be okay mm-hmm. yeah, I've, yeah i've seen that too i mean yeah. it seems so shifting sometimes away from when you know when we hope for to delay death or to prevent it which we can sometimes do but when we stop being able to do that well we can just shift to hope for legacy hope for right. remembrance hope yes. to maybe teach one last thing or, yes. or hope for peace or relief from pain or whatever. Yes. There still seems plenty of room to hope. Oh, most definitely. What advice would you give to our listeners about acknowledging our own mortality, whatever our age or whatever our health status? It goes back to be open to having those tough conversations. Sometimes too, even when we get a, a tough prognosis, there are many people, you know, especially your type A personalities, they want to talk about it. I got to control that too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I want to talk about this. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they get shut down by their loved ones saying, well, you know, mom, you're going to be around for a while. I don't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Talk about it. That's what they want to talk about. You know, when your loved one's going through something difficult like that, A, if they're not that type A personality, that's okay. You know, it's okay to be that person and just say, hey, mom, is this this an okay time? Can, Can we talk about this? If they're not ready quite yet, just say, that's no problem. We can talk about this another time. But I definitely like to have this conversation. I think preparation for life every day and preparation for our passing is really important. That's kind of what we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. People don't have that preparation for their passing, what that looks like, what's going to happen afterwards. And I'm sure you see it every time. Absolutely. And I've seen the harm that it does when even minimal preparations aren't put in place. I tell everybody, patience family members, friends, my kids, Yes, that once you turn 18, everybody ought to have documented who they want their healthcare power of attorney to be. And that yes. is the person that can speak for them legally if they become incapacitated, whether it's a car accident or a stroke or COVID. From a medical standpoint, that is the absolute minimum that everybody should have over age 18. From your perspective, you know, thinking more in terms of you know, life organization, do you have minimum recommended things that people should think about doing today? Yeah, it's very important when we're living to have that power of attorney. Something that's a misconception is that people think that that carries over after the passing occurs. Power of attorney actually ends at death. The healthcare power of attorney anyway, right? Yeah. Because there's other kinds of powers of attorney. Yeah. So all of them end at death. We actually- oh. Yeah, we have to work by bloodline, believe it or not. So it's levels of kinship. That's how we work. So if there's a spouse, it's real easy. Just one signature if someone's going to be cremated. The complication occurs when there's children or siblings. Wisconsin is a majority rule state. So take, for instance, if I had three family members that wanted cremation and two wanted burial, I have to listen to the majority. And sometimes that can create some complicated feelings in the process. But Wisconsin, each state is different. I did not know those things. Yeah. Yeah. One other public service announcement is that there's something in Wisconsin, which was introduced just a few years ago. It's called the Authorization for Final Disposition, and that trumps next of kin. You can fill out a form. You can appoint anyone to take care of your final arrangements. It does not have to be a family member, and the funeral home is legally obligated to listen to that one person. Majority does not apply, neither do levels of kinship. We all know someone in our lives who unfortunately has that feeling of estrangement with loved ones. And the unfortunate part is when they pass away, these are the people that we have to deal with. But this is one way to deal with that estrangement 
fill out a form like that. We can work with someone you trust, someone you love, and they can carry out your wishes. Whoever you're closest to in your life, mm -hmm. it's important to let them know some basic things. Do you want to be cremated? Mm -hmm. Do you want to be buried? What does that look like? That's such a big thing that even 15 years ago, when I first started doing this, most people were buried. And now my job is completely different. The majority of people are cremated. Mm -hmm. I always tell people because they say, well, I like this because of that, or I like this. It's such a personal thing. I'm not here to tell you what's better or what's not as good for you. It's a personal decision. And for a baseline, God forbid, if anything happens in your life, it's good to have just that baseline with someone you love, mm -hmm. someone you trust. And if you're willing to take that next step and have a little more conversation about what that looks like after you're passed away, like I said, have that folder. Let your loved ones know, mm -hmm. hey, if I pass away, here's some important things you need to know. What should everybody have in their when I die folder? And I, I'm looking for advice because I'm actually finishing up mine now. Yes. So I, I think for me, you know, bank accounts, life insurance policy numbers, companies, so many times when, when someone passes away, their loved ones don't know where they bank or they don't know what kind of, you know, life insurance company dad sat down with and mm -hmm. got this all organized with. You know, I even put, you know, kind of goofy things like, you know, remember this or remember that, you know, kind of spousal things. Mm -hmm. It's so important to when your loved one finds that file and they open it up. I think most people that have that think, oh my gosh, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Because this is one piece of the puzzle that I don't have to worry about anymore. And I can just take a deep breath now. You'd mentioned password to the phone and password yeah. to the whatever the critical accounts are. Correct. Yeah. Bank accounts, life insurance policies. Netflix. Exactly. Whatever. Exactly. Who's on the account? Who should right. be sharing it? Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. About once a month, I, I have a safe at home where I, you know, keep the bottle documents and the passports yes. and, you know, some things. And I, once a month, I make my son come downstairs and open the safe. Just smart. So, this is the past, you know, just show me you can get in this. Yes. So if people are interested in maybe giving a, a serious think about making some of these kinds of preparations, how can you and Malcor Funeral Homes help them? Actually, I'm lucky enough to work with my wife. My wife does do the pre-planning at Malcor Funeral Home. You know, People can sit down for free. It boils down to some people come and sit down and they just say, hey, I just want something basic written down. And that helps us a lot because if I get a, a phone call about uh, you know, John Doe, I know what John Doe wants because we have a file cabinet. When he passes away, I'm going to find it and I'm going to say, oh, John wants to be cremated. So I've got a baseline. Some people take it the next step. They, they want to pick out the, the, the flowers. They want to pick out the luncheon. They want to do everything, want to have everything organized. And sometimes they want to set money aside. All of those things are great. But at a minimum, you know, that baseline is, is so important. Sometimes people, they don't want to talk about it with a loved one. So they want to talk about it with the funeral home. I mean, that's what we do. That's what we do every day. And obviously we're not afraid to have those conversations or talk to any individual in the community about what that looks like. I'll uh, verify that the, the process is surprisingly convenient and also uh, for me kind of fun because I yeah. was in your, you know, I was in, in one of your locations not long ago making yes. my own arrangements and then had some really amazing conversations with yes. both my kids afterwards. Yes. Uh, and I mean, there's a lot of laughs as well. So yes. it's pretty cool. How can people reach you? 
I can be reached at any time. You know, we're 24 hours because of the nature of mm -hmm. our business. People can call our east side or our west side location. And many times some people, because it's Melkor Funeral Home, they want to talk to Matt Melkor and that's okay. Uh, I have some wonderful other funeral directors that work for us uh, that many people in the community probably know and prefer as well. So that that's totally fine. And we're we're opening to have a, a, a serious conversation. We're opening to have a, a lighthearted conversation. You know, sometimes in the midst of something serious, things can get kind of goofy, uh, lots of laughs and people kind of wonder, what are they talking about down there at a funeral home? But you know, it's it's up to the client. They have the the steering wheel, and whatever way they want to take it, we're, we're we're up for that. Matt Malcor, it's been great talking with you, and thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us on Cancer Covered. Please let us know what you think by leaving a review. To learn more, read our blog, request an appointment, search available clinical trials, or even apply to become a member of the team. Go to gboncology.com. Mm -hmm.